I don't know how it is at your house, but at uh, my house, my wife is very much involved in uh, health ministry that goes on. Uh, we consider ourselves a team. We do some things separately. We do some things together. As we began to uh, prepare for this particular uh, talk uh, for the Amen meeting this year, we thought it would be a good idea to uh, kind of showcase some uh, community practices where family is involved. And so uh, we've asked uh, a couple of physicians who I know have been active to share uh, what their family does. Uh, first will be uh, Keith Hansen. We had the pleasure of working together as family physicians on the island of Guam uh, for several years. And uh, so I know uh, Keith and Esther well. Uh, Esther's been very active in the uh, uh, CHIP program and doing it in the community, and uh, Keith is an uh, active uh, in health education and anxious to help the church uh, mission grow. So we're going to turn that over to him first. Uh, what uh, those that were uh, follow will be uh, Joel and Grazi Sabangan, and uh, they come from uh, South Central Oklahoma. Uh, Joel uh, did not. Uh, grow up in a Seventh-day Adventist uh, community or home, but was uh, converted in, was it medical school? So in medical school, uh, and has a, a passion, along with Graziella, for uh, this whole lifestyle medicine and uh, bringing Christ into the practice, making a difference. And he's done some unique things as well, and uh, he and Grazi will be sharing. I, I don't know, are you going to be sharing too? Okay, um, I ha am in primary practice, uh, family practice. I've been in Brewster, Washington. Brewster is <clears throat> just a little over an hour south of the Canadian border on Highway 97, right in the middle, uh, center part on the east side of the mountains, if you're acquainted at all with Washington State. So when I... Um, got the invitation to uh, talk here, I had to say it's a little bit uh, with trepidation that I approached this. <coughs> I emailed George some emails uh, talking about that issue. I said, oh no, what am I going to do? <laughs> so George has been very helpful uh, and encouraging. Um, <coughs> and I've, always, I've appreciated working with him since time of Guam. We've gotten to get together several times since. So spirituality and patient care uh, at here in San Diego. These are our objectives. I added a couple to them that are not in the thing, but particularly uh, this is the scientific portion, if you will, understanding the need to do spiritual care and recognizing the volume of evidence supporting the benefits to spiritual care. So exactly how do we go about doing it and why should we do it, et cetera. Um, I have uh, several references that I had meant to bring here and actually show you. One's this handbook, and I didn't, I left them in the room. Uh, <coughs> handbook of Religion and Health, uh, this uh, many of you may be acquainted with. It's fairly thick volume, and it actually uh, has a uh, kind of uh, summarized all the studies that they could find on religion and health. And I used to think, well, there's not very many. I would quote a few studies. And in reality, there's uh, probably over 4,000 studies uh, that have been published 
uh, on religion and health and the outcomes of that. And so what I will be doing today is not picking specific studies, but showing you the overwhelming evidence of what religion does uh, and what the studies have shown in, in that respect. The second um, is spirituality and patient care, also by Harold Koenig. Uh, he has um, a very good book uh, and brings up some cautions as well, which I think are worthwhile um, seeing. Next is uh, Gray Matter. How many of you have seen that book, Gray Matter? It's an outstanding book. It's, about, it's done by a neurosurgeon, an interventional neuro, endovascular neurosurgeon. Uh, and he uh, now prays with all, every patient. He tries to pray with every patient. Uh, and it starts his whole story of how he started about doing it. The first time he went to when he tried to sneak in and pray with the patient and then get out before the nurses noticed or, you know. Uh, and then the whole process of going through getting, uh, seeing what it did for his patients and then uh, how it, the nurses appreciated it and then other physicians and his whole process of what happens when you have a bad outcome. Uh, Etc. So it's it's very well uh, done and certainly well worth uh, reading. And then finally, uh, my personal testimony as to what we do in Brewster. So I hope to get through the scientific portion fairly quickly so that you can do that. One of the reasons for doing spiritual care is this statement. Notice who it's by: the Joint Commission Accreditation of Hospital Organizations, better known as JCO that requires that a spiritual history be taken. Renote that word, requires that a spiritual history be taken on every patient admitted to the hospital, acute care hospital, a nursing home, or seen by a home health agency. So every patient is supposed to have a spiritual history done. It doesn't specify your offices, but a lot of times as things develop, if it goes in one place, it ultimately ends up in another. And a lot of organizations are uh, trying to get accredited by JCO. Uh, so this is very interesting that they require that. And then uh, the, going along with uh, this as well, uh, 66 to 81% of patients say they would have greater trust in their physician if he or she asked about their religious or spiritual beliefs. And you combine that along with this next statement, other research has shown a significant improvement in the doctor-patient relationship when the physician does do that spiritual history. And even just doing that, just the minimum of asking, uh, are you religious? Do you have a religious persuasion? What denomination are you? Do you attend church? Just simple questions like that, some studies have shown that that in, in of it itself, if you did nothing else, has improved outcomes. Very interesting. It's because they patients. It's thought because patients perceive that you care more when you care about what they believe as well. So religious and coping, religious coping and depression, um, medically ill patients who rely on religion to cope adapt more quickly to illness than those who do not. This has been shown many times. Patients who depend on religion are less likely to develop depression. And if they do become depressed, are more likely to recover quickly from depression than patients who are less religious. What about uh, other aspects of spiritual care? Praying with patients in particular. 
Praying with patience is certainly a part of spiritual care and very important part and could also in some ways be a spiritual intervention for you as well. This being said, uh, there's quite a wide difference between some people's opinions. If you go from Dr. Levy who, and some of you who pray with every patient to some who raise the concern that a healthcare provider should not pray with anybody. You know, it should only be initiated by the patient and never by the healthcare provider. Well, look at this study. Illinois study, 160 primary care physicians. One third of them believe that patients might want to pray with them and then put along with that older patients in the same area where this study was done said they, when they were asked if they would like their physician to pray with them, 53% yes, very much so. 29% said yes somewhat and only 5% said no. Other studies in medical populations have reported between 28 to 67% have positive attitudes towards prayer. Um, <clears throat> So there is a large part of the population that appreciate uh, prayer and spiritual. So when can you do a spiritual history? How do you go about doing it uh, and maintaining appropriate bound, uh, boundaries? So the best times, some of the best times when you first meet the patient. You know, if you start off with a spiritual tone, they're more likely to accept it and feel more comfortable with it when you do that. So when taking medical history during a new patient examination or taking medical history with a hospital admission, uh, I've been recently trying to pray with um, every patient that gets admitted to the nursing home. Uh, some of it, if they have no ability to recognize what you're doing, actually some of those may be very good to pray with. I had one incidence only so far uh, of where um, I asked a family who had they admitted a patient, their, their parent, who was dying of cancer, and I asked if it was okay if I prayed with them for their parent, and they said absolutely not. They were offended that I would even ask, um, and I asked about why. They said, well, we're Jehovah's Witnesses, and our elders take care of that. <coughs> so they did not want me to pray with them. Of the different people that I've asked to pray with, so far the Jehovah's Witnesses are the only ones that really do not want you to pray with them. So taking that spiritual history ahead of time and knowing what denomination they are may make a, a difference. I had one other patient once who said they didn't want me to pray. They had no interest in spiritual things at all. Uh, so new patient evaluations. When do you take, uh, what part of this is a, uh, to take the spiritual history. Um, it fits very well in the social history. Uh, and then these are, these are interesting. These questions, all these questions, religious denomination or a member of faith community, whether religious beliefs provide comfort for them, how such beliefs might affect medical decisions, does a patient use prayer in their own life, do they attend church on a regular basis, these are all questions that you could include in your spiritual history. And these are all questions that are actually on the JCO site uh, as to things that you might be able to do uh, as to way of approaching the spiritual history. So that makes it much more interesting listening to the talks this morning when they raise the concern about, uh, you know, the, someone's getting sued with. So it, you know, you have good support in the literature saying it's very beneficial. So appropriate time, this is the best time to ask 
is it okay if I pray with you at times? Uh, would you want me to initiate the prayer? Would you like to ask for the prayer? Would you like to pray together uh, in certain times? You know, if you're admitted to the hospital, would you want me to pray for you or with you? You know, those are all good times. It's very, you know, non-confrontational in that setting because you're just getting to know them. And also, there's not an expected bad outcome. You know, most people think, oh, if I'm going to go to the hospital, I'm like, am I dying, doctor? Am I going to be okay? You know, or the family calls up and asks that. <coughs> so if you pray with them right then, they may start to think, oh, no. <laughs> am I that bad? <laughs> so what about praying? Some experts say never do, never pray with them due to the power difference between a patient and the healthcare provider. Let's see if we can put that up here. Should it be initiated by the patient or by the health uh, by the healthcare provider? That's what HP stands for. Instead of doctor, they just put healthcare provider. So there's this big power difference, and so they're likely not to say no to you, but they may have real questions about it. So they also some experts advise that you should never do it. Uh, initiate spiritual activities and rely on the patient to take the first step. If you take this attitude you're likely never going to be asked, number one. Uh, and, uh, but if you find that out in your spiritual history, you can ask them, you know, is it okay if I ask you at another time to pray with you? Uh, or if they say, no, I would really like to ask you if, if you know, and so we can respect their wishes uh, <coughs> for that. So, Most patients, this is interesting, I found this in the scientific literature too, most patients do not want healthcare providers inquiring or discussing spiritual matters until after they have competently dealt with medical issues. So the question is, is there some negative outcomes as a result of uh, having prayer with patients? Uh, and here are some instances. A psychiatrist who prayed with a patient in Texas state medical, uh, mental health system, the prayer confused the patient who told his family about it. Family sued. The jury awarded the, uh, ruled against the psychiatrist in favor of the family. Very interesting. Another one, a Christian physician asked a patient who was a Jehovah's Witness, this is like the one I had, the patient refused to have prayer with him and when he asked why, he said, if you use the word God in your prayer, I would find it very offensive because they want the word Jehovah. They don't want any mention of God. It has to be Jehovah. And another one, a social worker at the hospital placed a tract, just placed the tract at the bedside of the table of the patient. The patient's family, who were, guess what, Jehovah's Witnesses, saw the pamphlet when visiting the patient. Upset by this, they sued the social worker and the hospital. So there are potentials for negative outcomes or negative consequences. If physical healing does not occur as a result of prayer, the patient may be disappointed or discouraged, uh, claiming that the prayer was not answered or that God does not care, or worse, that God is angry and vengeful towards them. So the picture of God that you present makes a huge difference it can in their lives. And this is another reason uh, and actually, this aspect of it, David Levy in his book, Gray Matter, deals with this factor and uh, people that he had who had very negative outcomes and yet he was able to still connect with them 
in prayer and help them through that, particularly in follow-up exams. Conversion to a different religious group from Christian to Buddhist or Catholic to Evangelical Christian, for example, may cause disharmony, anger, and pain to other family members, close friends, and possibly even the patients themselves. So you have to somewhat, what is it, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Uh, take, be, be thoughtful about how you do it and how you approach it. And I think that interaction at the very beginning when you're first getting to know patients can make a big difference in that. Like the person who was saying this morning, his partner prayed with everybody, but he didn't. But whenever he saw his partner's patients, he said, would you like me to pray for you? And they said, well, if you didn't, I would be disappointed. You know, and I've had patients in my office who will come in and ask me to pray with them at times. And I don't pray with them every time that they come in, uh, but for some quite frequently. So this has a lot to do with was a question that was asked earlier uh, about boundaries. Obtaining patient consent is essential, as is maintaining HP's boundaries, as well as uh, taking a spiritual history, supporting religious beliefs, praying with patients, or referring to clergy. Um, the author of that book really thinks that the people most qualified, uh, and generally you might find that to be true, is people like chaplains uh, that are trained specifically to care for spiritual needs in hospitalized patients. Uh, and many doctors aren't really trained in that way. So how you do that is um, you have to take into very consideration. And this one other saying that they had, it is the patient's religious uh, or spiritual beliefs that are to be supported, not the beliefs of the healthcare provider. Very important. And so if you have opportunity, you're asking, you can ask, would you want me to contact your minister or your clergy or is there someone specifically like that and to support them. And as they see that you care for them, perhaps they will want to know more about your religion. You know, this is what I believe, but you really seem to be a caring doctor and I would like to know more. That, that's exactly what we would like to do. That would be, I guess, what you call disinterested benevolence. Now I want to go through these health studies rather quickly because I want to have a little time to tell you a little bit more about what's happened in my practice. And what these are are not specific studies, but the number of studies that show a benefit in certain areas. For instance, in coping and depression, nearly 500 studies, quantitative studies, report religious coping is associated with better adjustment. So 500 studies, that's a lot of studies. Well-being, 224 studies in the past 10 years. 78% report a positive relationship between religion and well-being. The same with optimism, not as many studies, 26 out of 32, but that's 81% uh, show benefit. Quality of life, 64% of those studies show positive relationship between religion and spirituality. More studies, hope is the same thing, 73% show greater hope if you're more religious. Uh, social support, 82% of the studies. Remember, this is not how, the, how many benefit. It's how many studies show that there are benefit. It's not just a single study here and there. Loneliness, 9 out of 17 studies. Now, when I first read this one, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Does that mean that there's 47% of the studies show that they're more lonely? And in reality, what it is is that the great, all of these areas 
the great majority, anywhere from 43% up to 94%, show benefit in these different areas. And typically, it's less than 10% show uh, detriment. And then the difference between those is there's no association, you know, or mixed findings or something like that. So loneliness shows benefit. Self-esteem, 61% of the studies show benefit from religion and spirituality. And then we get to depression. Depression, there's a lot more studies done on depression and religion and coping uh, than in some of the other areas. 413 studies, 252. So 61% show lowered rates of depression, faster recovery in individuals who are more religious. You saw some of this before. 14 uh, out of 22 clinical trials. So clinical trials have more significance. So lots of benefit from clinical trials as well. Prospective cohorts, the same type of thing. So this one 9%, this is show worsening of depression. So uh, the great majority show benefit, just like in all of these areas. So cohort studies, 11% predicted higher levels of depression. So the great majority of times, uh, you see that there's benefit. Suicide, there's also benefit. Uh, anxiety, the same types of benefits and psychotic disorders, the same kind of benefit. Alcohol, uh, this is 86%, and then when you look at really well done studies, 90%. And these are high enough, and the same with drug abuse, these are high enough that some people have said maybe this should be a public health matter, uh, and people uh, should be encouraged to have religious practices. Marital stability, is also a, much benefited by religion. Marital stability includes marital satisfaction, marital commitment, uh, relationship cohesion, marital sexual fidelity, uh, less divorce and separation, etc. So that is all benefit. So those all have to do with mental health. This is uh, physical health, and this is the only one that I'm going to go through. These are uh, 11 of the risk factors relating to heart disease. And if you look at the number of studies or the percentages, uh, the great percentage, I'm going to just put them all up here in, for the interest of time, that show uh, there is benefit uh, to religion and spirituality. The exception is obesity. It seems that there was actually slightly more, uh, greater weight with uh, religion and spirituality. <laughs> <laughs> Satisfaction, right? And so you eat. And diabetes follows closely behind that because of the association with obesity. So, so the question is, uh, these, all of these things, does this really relate to less coronary heart disease uh, or not? And when you do the more definitive study, just like in hormone replacement, there was some, they thought it would be beneficial, and then when they did a more definitive study, there was more cancer, there was more heart disease, more stroke, that type of thing. Well, with uh, heart disease, we find that it's just the opposite. Heart disease has shown benefit in all, whoops, I gotta go back to that. Benefit, uh, so 63% of the studies out of the 19 studies showed significant inverse relationship. So the more, re more religion and spirituality, the less heart disease there was. Only 5% reported increased uh, heart disease and 5% mixed findings and then there was that group in between that showed none. And I wanted to share just uh, one or two things from my own practice. Uh, Esther and I have done a lot of 
CHIP programs that has made us lots of friends in the community, which has been very helpful. I have started uh, praying more with my patients, particularly after reading the book Gray Matter. But there's one part that I think that is the most important thing that you can do to equip your office, if you will. We've done all kinds of things. We have books sometimes out in the lobby and pamphlets. Uh, I've had a monitor we tried putting so we could put up religious type videos and some of that didn't work out so very well. But the most important thing that you can do to equip your office is your personal preparation. That means spending time every day listening to God speak through his word, uh, listening to the words of Jesus, uh, then praying uh, and listening to the Holy Spirit uh, as he prompts you who you should pray with or who you shouldn't or how you should uh, involve that spiritual history taking, <coughs> etc. And so, for instance, my own life, I get up early every morning. I've fortunately been able to wake up early all my life and it's been very beneficial. It's a time when there's not a lot of other things interfering with things that I have to do. And so I have that quiet time that I can spend anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. And then I will pray and ask God, who should I be praying with today? And sometimes it'll be five or six people, sometimes none. At the end of the day, when there's been none that I've chosen to pray with, I have to go back and say, okay, God, where did I resist your voice? and not praying. And I find that way, uh, I think, oh, I should have prayed with that patient. And so the next time that I see him, I may take that opportunity to pray with him. And uh, just one story, we, I, there's a patient in my practice who came into my practice not too long ago. Uh, it's actually been probably a year or two now. But he came in and he, I was examining his wife for a cold or something and he, he had gotten one of the books out of it. Uh, and said, oh, look, these people believe in the Saturday as the Sabbath. And with that start, I had many interactions with him. Sometimes I'd share some tapes with him and encouragement. He got connected some with other, some pe other people in our church, ended up with Bible studies with the pastor, has not yet been baptized, but most recently has written us saying, I consider the Seventh-day Adventist church our church, me and my wife. They've gone through some marital issues, and now we're coming back to that. And so there's been other stories of that as well. So with that, I'm gonna turn over the time to Dr. Sabangan. Well, good afternoon. My name is Joel Sabangan, and this is my wife, Graziella. And our son, Adam, is here with us. He's sitting in the front row. <laughs> we are a very busy pulmonary and sleep medicine practice in Southern Oklahoma. And I also do a little bit of wound care. As Dr. Guthrie had mentioned, I was converted. I didn't grow up as an Adventist. I was converted uh, uh, to our church, our doctrines, uh, when I was in medical school in the Philippines. And um, I was baptized here in the U.S. when I did my fourth year clinical clerkship. And I've been blessed with a wonderful, godly wife. and partner in life who not only believes in what I believe in, but also strongly promotes it. She's been actually the pillar and a wonderful impetus in the growing ministry in our office. We opened our office about 10 years ago with the thought in mind that this was not just going to be a, a medical practice, but also a, a medical ministry totally dedicated to the Lord. And as Dr. Hansen 
uh, touched on the, uh, the scientific uh, aspect of uh, spirituality and medical practice. We're going to touch more on the, the practical aspect of, uh, of spirituality. And our objective is to give you practical ways of incorporating spiritual and lifestyle interventions in your medical practice. And I believe we can better explain by giving examples of real life stories from our practice. You know, being a pulmonologist, I deal with smokers probably more than any other specialty. You know, I've had a lady who, who's been coming to our office for her lung problems, and she noticed in our waiting room and exam rooms that we have, you know, health and Bible tracts all over the place. And her curiosity made her read some of these tracts, and she was convinced that our beliefs are consistent with the Bible as she plainly understood them. She, however, was still struggling with uh, tobacco addiction. And so during one of our office visits, I had asked her if I could pray with her for her addiction, and she unobjectively uh, consented. And from that time on, she has maintained uh, a smoke-free life. And I try to pray with and for patients when opportunity arises. And it's been my experience that my patients are very appreciative of a Christian doctor who incorporates the spiritual with the uh, physical. In fact, I had invited her to our Bible studies, but since she lives about 30 miles away, she had just sent for Bible studies, uh, Bible study guides. Well, this, this is an example of someone who is open to spiritual and lifestyle intervention, but this scenario has not always been the case in our location. Being in southern, in southern Oklahoma, in a place where there was previously an Adventist institution, we often encounter preconceived notions of what SDAs and their diets are like. However, we have found a great change in the receptiveness of our patients over the years as they've gotten to know our family better. And um, I'm here to just share how our whole family is involved in that. I don't know, Dr. Hansen, how your wife got off the hook, but. I was told that I was supposed to be up here. Um, so one of the first things we did was to make sure that we had plenty of printed material with spiritual messages available. We've placed picture frames. Um, we have examples of a couple here in our waiting rooms and also in our exam rooms with Bible verses or short spirit of prophecy quotes. So even before their first encounter with my husband, they know they will be taken care of by a Christian physician. The pen of inspiration tells us that whether the patient is a Christian or not, he feels greater security if he knows that his physician fears God. At our checkout area, as Dr. Hansen had mentioned too, we have a rack that we keep stocked with health and spiritual pocketbooks with a sign that says free materials. And we've noticed pharmaceutical reps, our landscape workers, employees, and of course patients um, freely take and comment on our literature there. Um, before we put them out, Adam, our son, enjoys putting a sticker on each one with an offer of Bible studies, and then we pray over them together. And we ask that the Holy Spirit and God's angels will minister to each person who picks up these materials. God has promised that his word will not return unto him void. In our waiting room, we've opened a family resource library, which is a collection of books, DVDs, and audio CDs. Christ said, ye are the light of the world. As a people who have been given much light, our medical practices can be beacons of light in our communities in the spread of true life-changing knowledge. 
One afternoon, after clinic hours, I walked into her waiting room, and there was a patient sitting in one of the chairs. He was outfitted in black leather and um, motorcycle wear, had hair below his shoulders, and he looked pretty tough. Um, I handed him one of our interest cards, and I told him about the library I had come to open up. What he said next surprised me. He asked, do you have anything in your library by uh, Doug Batchelor? <laughs> and, and then he said, that's all I listen to on my iPod. <laughs> Aren't you thankful that the Lord looks on the heart? Just judging from his appearance, I hadn't expected him to have a strong spiritual interest. So I showed him the book, The Richest Caveman, which we have in our library. When I shared this experience with my husband, he told me that he had had spiritual conversations with him during his exam visits already. So each encounter that you or, you or your family can have with a patient is another opportunity to be a witness and can help to lower barriers to spiritual truths. After, me, after meeting him, I added him and his wife to, his, excuse me, to my prayer list and was thrilled when they both attended our flu lectures a couple of months later. As we chatted afterwards, I thought it was very interesting. She confided, our church isn't happy that we watch 3ABN all the time, but we tell our friends we haven't heard anything yet that disagrees with the Bible. So you can use your office for outreach and spreading the printed word to your patients and other community members. Our next case is uh, Mr. Jones, not his real name. He came to the office for the first time being short of breath. In fact, the first few words that came out of his mouth was, I can't breathe, help me. So needless to say, it was an emergency and I needed to admit him to the hospital and he was found to have severe cardiomyopathy and pericardial effusion. He was also 100 pounds overweight. Cardiology consultation was obtained and his condition improved significantly with proper medication and diagnostic and therapeutic intervention. But I discussed with him and his wife, while still in the hospital, the importance of lifestyle uh, changes in combination with traditional medication. At first, he was reluctant, but memories of his grave, near-death experience revolutionized his thinking right away. So you have to understand, you know, this is southern Oklahoma. And I don't know if you've been reading re recently, but Oklahoma has been consistently in, in, in the bottom three as far as the overall health in our country. He was reluctant until he tried and found out that a plant-based diet is as palatable as a meat diet, but at the same time healthier. Shortly after, my wife gave him samples of yummy food, yummy food, tasting food during our sample day, and she's gonna talk about that. And, and he was hooked. And to date, he has lost about 100 pounds and still, and still fondly jokes about his diet as composed of twigs and acorn. <laughs> You know, the guy's amazing, and he's, he's become a spokesperson for us doing our weight loss and cooking seminars. So sample days. If you want another way to get to know your patients better and let them try something yummy and healthful, you can even serve food samples right in your waiting room. My son and I were doing this once a week for a long time. With his help, I would fix one or two recipes, set up a table right in our waiting room during clinic time, and offer samples along with a printed recipe. Um, just to make sure, excuse me, just make sure you have a jumbo-sized hand sanitizer pump clearly visible for their use. Adam would sometimes wear the shirt we made for a sample day that featured tofu, and he'll stand up and show you that. It says, give tofu a chance. Um, 
<laughs> Thank you, Adam. He's really a trooper. He's right there with us. Um, we had an amazing response. They loved meeting us, and of course it doesn't hurt that my son is a pocket-sized edition <laughs> of my husband. Um, but we heard things often like, wow, we never thought something healthy would taste good. And um, I do remember, I'll just mention, well, after, after you give them the sample, of course, and the recipe, you give them a card where they can sign up for an e-health newsletter and, of course, the option of Bible studies. And I do remember seeing Mr. Jones, um, the patient my husband mentioned, checking out after his exam that day. And I invited him into the waiting room to try a food sample. And he grudgingly replied, yeah, your husband already told me I had to. <laughs> and as, <laughs> like he had no choice. As he walked up to our table, he said, you better not try to give me tofu or anything like that. He didn't have a, that shirt on. But um, <laughs> thankfully, we were giving out whole grain blueberry muffins that day. So a little something more familiar. And as he sat in a chair munching right in front of me, he didn't say anything. So I just started sharing how my husband and I had gotten interested in health and our journey since that time. And I could just see his attitude softening. He was much friendlier when he left um, than when he came in. And the next time we saw him in the clinic, you remember that time, he was bursting with enthusiasm about his newfound lifestyle and the resulting weight loss. And so each member of your family can play a cooperative role in helping to lower an individual's prejudice and build their confidence and openness. Well, the health seminars we've run in our office have been very well received by our patients and their friends and families. You know, we've held cooking classes, weight loss seminars, smoking cessation classes, and special interest health seminars like keeping your brain young and boosting your immune system. You know, this is an excellent way to build relationship with your patients, as many will come back for future classes and might check interest in Bible studies as a result. We are told in John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. But if we are willing to cooperate with God and he allows us to co-labor with him for the precious people brought into our practice or um, sphere of influence. As a convenience to our patients and in order to help give them ideas on more healthful food items, we've opened up a small natural food store right in our office and this is called Adam's Pantry. Um, not just named after our son but also the first Adam who was given a plant-based diet by his creator. We sell some of our favorite items and price them as low as possible. We're even willing to lose money on it since we see it as part of our ministry. We sell besides food, Christian CDs, cookbooks, DVDs. Um, it's very easy to put in a health brochure or an invitation for an upcoming meeting at your church into their bags. As we share how our family uses a product and why we like it, it's an opportunity to bond with them. And conversations often move from food to other issues. Patients will share things that they're going through, be it the painful loss of a spouse or a serious illness. That gives you an opportunity to share a word or follow up with a card in the mail, thereby showing kindness and sympathy, which helps break down barriers and encourage spiritual openness. The third patient I want to talk about is a wound care patient. During my fellowship, my mentors were in charge of the hyperbaric unit at our hospital, so I became interested in wound care. However, I find that many, if not the majority, of all wound care centers in the United States generally treat patients just from the wound care treatment aspect, i.e. enzymatic debriders, collagen dressings, or complex silver-laden dressings, etc., but rarely approach the patients 
uh, or the problem from the standpoint of dietary modification and other lifestyle changes. Mr. Brown, again, not his real name, had been coming to the wound care department at our hospital for close to eight years now for the same wound. I, I wasn't the one involved in his care until June of this year. You know, he's diabetic, he's non-compliant, he's a smoker, and a severe vasculopath. And so I inherited Mr. Brown with this complex problem of having this plantar surface wound that was also osteomyelitic, which means a bone infection. You know, I believe that the, the first verse that deals with wound care in the Bible is in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, where it says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So if you really think about that, you know, it's true for every cell in the body. Without adequate circulation, no organ can survive. And so when I met Mr. Brown, he and his wife, I told him that the wound would heal eventually if he did exactly what I told him. In addition to doing traditional wound care, I told him that he needed to quit smoking, that he needed to drink water and water only and eat a plant-based diet. And I shared that verse in Leviticus without, you know, with him, and I told him that I was going to be praying for him. But Mr. Brown is a very stubborn man, and I wondered if he would ever follow my instructions. But surprisingly, he did. Because, you know, think about it, eight years of the same wound, not healing. You know, what, what was amazing was within a couple of weeks of being off cigarettes and eating a plant-based diet and drinking plenty of water, it was evident that the circulation had improved because every time I debrided the wound, it would ooze more blood. And, uh, and I just saw him about a week ago. And it's now about 98% healed, which is even faster than I anticipated. This was in June. It's now late October, and it's 98% healed. And I had anticipated maybe, oh, maybe a year or so, and it would have been better for him anyway because he had been suffering from this for, for eight years. And so his remarkable healing helps this patient, you know, to have confidence in me a Christian doctor, but we ought to always remember that the purpose of, of doing all this is to point him to his maker, our God, the master healer. Part of the challenge is identifying which patients have an interest in learning lifestyle principles or have a spiritual openness. I put, I put together a patient survey, and you're welcome to pick one up from the table up here. Um, this form asks patients to select from classes they might be interested in attending, health topics they'd like to see featured, and we also have a section right on there about spiritual interests where patients can sign up for Bible studies. We were amazed. In just six weeks of using this survey with our patients, we had 32 people indicate they wanted to learn more about different Bible topics or enroll in Bible studies and we received many health seminar interests. We found the best way to use these surveys was to have a receptionist put one in each chart for the day's patients and then my husband would hand it personally to the patient in the exam room right after he finished the exam and before he left the room with instructions for them to fill it out and leave it with the receptionist. As exciting as it is to get a survey back with Bible study checked off, we found that finding the time to follow up on these interests can be a real challenge. You could hire a Bible worker or someone with a pastoral background, which we have done in the past. However, this year we are trying something new. 
How many of you have children in your home of any age? Anybody? Here's an idea to get them involved in the follow-up. Since we homeschool, one of our subjects is Bible. So I thought, why not start a Bible correspondence school right out of our home as part of Bible class? So we brought home all our materials and set them up right in our family room. And now when we get an interest, we can send out the studies or DVDs within a week. As we were sending out our first batch of studies, along with a self-addressed envelope for them to send the study back to be graded, my son asked if we had a key with the answers. We use Mark Finley's Search for Certainty lessons, and as far as I know, there is no key. But I'm so glad there isn't, because it was the perfect opportunity to say, we'll make a key, and together we have done that. He's very excited to complete a study and take part in sending these lessons out. What a blessing to be able to involve your children in ministry. On Sabbath afternoons, my husband has joined us in sending out some studies, so even if you don't homeschool, you could make it a family Sabbath project. If you want some ideas on things to mail out in response to the survey, um, there are samples of brochures and lessons right here on the table, along with some photos of the programs and resources we've shared. And you're also welcome to put a, pick up a couple of our uh, most popular recipes from sample days and cooking classes here. In the book Christian Health, page 503, it says, an intelligent knowledge of how to treat disease upon hygienic principles will gain the confidence of many who otherwise would not be reached with the, tr with the truth. In affliction, many are humbled in spirit and words in favor of the truth spoken to them in tenderness by one who is seeking to alleviate physical sufferings may touch the heart. Prayer, short, weighted with tenderest sympathy, presenting the sufferings, suffering ones in faith to the great physician will inspire in them a confidence, a rest, and trust that will tend to be the health of both soul and body. And so this afternoon, we hope that you've been able to glean a few ideas as to how our health message can be shared through resources and programs that, and how it can, serve it can serve to lower prejudices and meet or encourage spiritual openness in your patients. Thank you very much. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.